Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. From Alexis to Tuckville to Alexandra Solzhenitsyn to John Lennon, it's often taken those born outside of America to understand and define America back to us. Those of us brought up engulfed in both the popular culture and political noise inherent in our society often can't see the proverbial forest from the trees. Today, my guest Roger Bennett has taken up that mantle. The impresario of the Men in Blazers media empire not only exposes soccer to a burgeoning American audience, he also explains America to Americans, particularly in his new book, Reborn in the USA. It is my pleasure to welcome Roger Bennett here to the program to talk about Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for that generous introduction. When did you first realize that that you saw America a little bit differently from your point of view, even though you had been raised on American popular culture and fascinated by it for so long? When did you realize that your view of America was a little bit different than those of us that grew up here? Well, there are many, many different answers to that, and the, the truly... Uh, resounding, remarkable one is when I released the book uh, um, and just the reception across the nation um, has been deeply humbling. It turns out that Americans seem to love what new Americans love about America, which is an enormous, enormous relief because my goal in writing this book, which I started during lockdown, which hit Manhattan incredibly hard, a place you know, I, as a 12-year-old in Liverpool growing up, I had the American flag and the Manhattan skyline painted on one bedroom wall, a very crude version of the Manhattan skyline. It actually, the photograph, when I look at it now, it's in the book. It looks a little bit uh, more like Warsaw. But I used to dream of living in Manhattan. I made that dream come true. And then COVID hit, um, and New York was hit incredibly hard, if you remember, late March, sure. early April. And the city that I love was, was really just swept up in chaos, fear, panic of the unknown. And in times of darkness in the present, I think it's a very natural human response to recede into the past and past and mine moments of joy. And so many of my moments have been about the American idea, which has given me in my life strength, confidence, joy, and meaning when I needed it. And I tapped into it. Um, in writing the book, almost in a fever dream through the first four and a half months of lockdown. And to present now in this moment of time, uh, holding up what I love about America, what is great to me about America, um, I, I really realize how different it is only in terms of the, the joy with it, which it's been received by my fellow Americans. When you were growing up in Liverpool as as a young man, as a teenager, what did your friends and, and, and your peers think of your fixation with America? The, um, the reality is Liverpool, a magnificent city, a magnificent city. But back in the 1980s, when I grew up, it was a time of darkness. The north of England, an industrial, proud region had been laid waste to post-war and the coal pits had closed down and the steel mills. Um, and the cotton mills and Liverpool, this once proud port city, had no reason to be anymore. Unemployment soared. A heroin epidemic gripped the city. There was really a, just an incredible fever of hopelessness. Um, and I survived by, by inhaling the, 
books, movies, television shows, music, the, the NFL, they all hail the Chicago Bears Super Bowl winning team, John Hughes movies, Run DMC, Tracy Chapman, all of which made me believe life could be lived in color, whereas mine was lived in black and white. Um, and I shared that dream with, a, with my best friend, who is a, the central character in the book, together. Um, you know, Billy Elliot had ballet dancing. That saved him. We had you know, dreams of America, ambitions of America. We had Don Johnson in Miami Vice. We had Bruce Willis in Moonlighting. Uh, we had Public Enemy. And we just feasted upon them as, as a, really collectively um, they helped us survive and America really saved us. But it was a dual dream that we shared together. It's really a book about friendship as much as anything. And when you got to America, when you got to Chicago, were you disappointed or, or how did you feel about the images you had, the images you had grown up with versus the reality you encountered? Well, first of all, Chicago was a place I went to mostly because I've always told myself I was an American trapped in an English boy's body. <laughs> and that uh, reality is an 80-year story that begins with my great-grandfather, Harris, who left um, Eastern Europe in the early 1900s, like millions uh, and was headed to Chicago, according to family myth. He was a butcher. He wanted to go to the hog capital of the world. But when the boat left Ukraine and docked in Liverpool to refuel, he mistook the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, thought he was in New York City and got off the boat a stop early, thus marooning us for decades in Liverpool <laughs> instead of our, our, our promised land of, of Chicago. So Chicago loomed so large, Jeff. When I did make it, first as a 15-year-old visiting a pen pal for the summer, the northern suburbs where John Hughes had used as his canvas for every single movie that had moved my heart, um, it was magnificent. And I, the, the summer I spent there, I actually met the Chicago Bears in an interchange, which is one of the apex moments of the book. And William Refrigerator Perry, a cult hero in the 1980s, an enormous uh, defensive lineman who played both sides of the ball and had a real carnival-esque personality. He was known as the Fridge. He leant into my ear and whispered, dream big dreams, kid. I did, and you can do it too, which I, you know, he just wanted to get rid of me, I realize now. But at the time, I thought the Fridge himself was telling me to move to Chicago, which I swore to do. And I did right after university. Um, and the reality is my book is about the power of the American idea. Um, I wrote it at a time when the American reality, obviously last summer, with uh, not just uh, the pandemic, but morphing into the Black Lives Matter summer, the trauma and agony of that and into the election. The American reality is something completely uh, different. But I wrote the book in the spirit of the epigraph, which was written by the great American poet Langston Hughes, who wrote, oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And that's the spirit in which I wrote the book. And in that spirit, you were becoming an American citizen at a time when so many Americans were thinking about, you know, maybe going to be an expatriate somewhere isn't such a bad thing. Um, it's, it's a time of chaos. A time of the, the Dickens would write, the best of times, the worst of times. All I can tell you is I became an American in 2018 and to go to a courtroom in the southern tip of Manhattan and hold your hand up 
um, and see the oath of allegiance in the company, Jeff, of 162 individuals from 42 different countries. You know, I just survived Liverpool in the 1980s. Some of these people had escaped civil war, uh, conflict, famine, worse, had walked you know, across huge desert to be in that courtroom. And when you talk afterwards uh, with your fellow new Americans, um, the one thing that bonded us all was just the power of the idea of America, which had given us all such courage, such confidence, such hope uh, when we needed it. And that's what I focus on and try and offer up in this moment to my fellow Americans in this love letter of a book. And as much as you embrace America and American culture and all the things you've talked about, you never gave up or it doesn't seem like it ever waned your love of, of football. Soccer. Soccer. I love all forms of football. You know, I'm, I love the Chicago Bears. I was just in Chicago this weekend. I threw out the first pitch. And my beloved Chicago White Sox. I love every American ball sport. But soccer is, you know, I'm a Liverpool boy. And at the end of the day, in the darkest uh, 1980s days, football was, soccer was what we had. It's how we announced ourselves to the world. It's how we understood the world outside of the city. Um, Albert Camus, who before he slummed it as a writer, was actually a terrific goalkeeper. He once said, everything I know about humanity and the motivations of men, I learned by watching football. And I feel the same. Football essentially gives me a sense of meaning, sense of structure, a sense of global connectivity, um, and, and more than anything, an incredible set of collective memories. And thank God, thank God, Jeff, I'm living in an America where you know our women are World Cup champions, our men are surging in the most remarkable way. And America has become a normal football nation. One of the things you talk about is this, this idea, and you just touched on it, that, that soccer is a way to see the world, that it encapsulates culture, politics, relationships, that it is really a framework from which to see the world. Is it unique in the sports world in that sense? Undoubtedly. Um, you know, I love American sports, um, but when the Tennessee Titans um, take to the field, you see a franchise take to the field. When you watch the World Cup, um, and two teams take to the field their nation's history, their nation's culture, their nation's politics take the field alongside of them. And ultimately, football, and this is its joy, and this is also its human darkness, Jeff, football is just a mirror that reflects the society which surrounds it. So you watch England, you know, I ride with Team America now, but you watch England in a, a recent tournament, the Euros, um, they had a team of young, diverse, dynamic, um, just the most emotionally articulate football team I've ever seen. They spoke to the nation about race, about identity, um, about, uh, about mental uh, challenges. They were willing to speak about anything, and they were really inspired the nation as long as they won. At the very last, they lost like Sisyphus letting the, uh, in the final, letting the trophy fall away from their fingers. Uh, and the three players who... Uh, were held to blame in a missed penalty shootout. It happened to be the three youngest black players. And there was a, just an outcry from you know, a, a section of the fans who are racist, misogynist, just far right. You know, it's essentially, the Brexit debate played out through football. And the last voice we heard after a summer of love 
was a voice of darkness. What is that? That is not football. That is just a reflection of the two Britons that are battling to define themselves one against the other. And I just say, watching from afar, I hope the England of the football team, the diverse, the emotionally intelligent, the brave, the courageous, the just deeply endearing, I hope that's the, the face that wins out, but we will have to see. What is it about the game? What is it about soccer that brings that out, that makes it so broadly reflective? It's a global blanket. Um, that really, when, the, when the World Cup occurs, it's, it's, been, it's been compared to a global eclipse that sweeps the nation, uh, sweeps the world at the, just in that instant. There's nothing else that whole, I mean, watching the Olympics now, it comes, it comes close, but it's still, um, you know, it's still the, 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 there's hundreds of events happening all at the same time, and the attention span is uh, depending on what nation you're from, where your athletes are. You, you, we're all focusing on different elements. The World Cup holds the world in its grip one game at a time. It's like a, a telenovela uh, with every single human emotion but acted out live without a script. Um, and there's really nothing else in it that compares. The Super Bowl is a remarkable event. I adore it. You know, I live for it. Many of your listeners no doubt live their lives uh, through a spine of Super Bowls. But the audience figures for that compared to um, football and the emotional um, investment that the world puts upon it, it's, um, it's the difference between a skyscraper um, and a modest family dwelling. You talk about the burgeoning interest in, in soccer in the U.S. Is there a ceiling to that? I mean, have we reached the sort of maximum point of that, or do you think that it can continue to grow? Look, I, I've been here since 1993, right before the World Cup was here in 1994, and the World Cup was meant to put the sport over the top <laughs> in America, you know, the game's final frontier. And football was meant to be like a pogo stick or a yo-yo, just a fad that swept the nation. It didn't do that. You know, we joke on men in blazers, soccer is America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. It's always meant to be the next big thing. And instead of being an overnight sensation, football's growth has been slow and steady. You know, it, it, it has been a heavy uh, uh, Latino um, component, massive audience watching the Mexican League. But now the Premier League, uh, is broadcast here. The, the audience has grown year on year on year. Uh, it's been dizzying for me to see as a man that loves America. Obviously, my book makes that very clear. And I love football to see the nation I love uh, fall in love with the game I love. I know that's a lot of love, but it's been the joy and the journey of a lifetime. And I like to joke that at the end of the day, Men in Blazers is the, is the only thing holding the sport back from going completely over the top. We have a World Cup coming here in 2026. That's a massive game-changing date that looms ahead. Uh, we have a young um, set of male players who are thriving in Europe, which we've never, ever, ever come close to having before. You're playing for the big teams, Chelsea, Dortmund, Juventus. We used to be thrilled when some random American guy would play against those teams. Now we have young kids starting for them. Obviously, our women um, are a world superpower. Um, I think, to be honest, we've got some some ways to go uh, in terms of uh, hitting the ceiling, but I look forward to us getting there. It's interesting that the men that become so good here wind up playing back in Europe. Yeah, that's a hard thing for Americans to get their head around. 
you know, every league in America is the best league in the world. The NBA, the best basketball league, the NFL, there's nothing that competes. Um, uh, you know, MLB, the World Series, when you win that, you're the World Series champion. Um, so to not have the best league in the world in our shores is a, you know, it's a hard thing for Americans to get their head around. But we've given the world a 100, 120-year head start. Um, and to have the best young male players, um, they need to play for the best teams, against the best players, in the biggest games. And those are in England, in the Premier League, they're in Germany, in the Bundesliga, they're in Italy, in Spain. Um, and our players have always been seen as you know, pragmatic players, robust players, well-behaved players. And middling players has been a stigma about American males. You know, no one would pay big money for them. Um, they weren't thought to be elite. Uh, but that's changed. Christian Pulisic, his pathway, leaving uh, America, leaving Hershey, Pennsylvania in his mid-teens, learning German, grinding away. It takes tenacity to stick in that culture in Germany, which is absolutely vicious, those locker rooms in terms of the competitive nature. And he was it was hard. Uh, you know, I went out to see him when he was 17. It was hard. I mean, the loneliness, the confusion, just the cultural difference. But he... Um, on the field and off it, Rose and has become, you know, a deeply coveted young player with a massive upside. Uh, his team, Chelsea, are utterly thriving. And he's built a pathway. When you speak to these young players, the 18, 19-year-olds, Gio Reyna, um, who plays at Dortmund, he will say, I look at Christian Pulisic, he's the one I want to follow. And there's, you know, there's, there's dozens uh, of kids that are following in their lead. And it, the, for people like me, who've dreamed of a time when our men can truly, truly compete. We're not quite there yet, but that dream feels realer than ever, and it's genuinely thrilling. And talk about the role that Men in Blazers has played in, in one, American's acceptance and understanding of the sport, and also the role it played in plugging you into a part of American pop culture. Oh, Jeff, I'm both English and Jewish, so I'm filled <laughs> with a double portion of self-loathing. So I find it very hard. I mean, it's quite funny. I've just written a book about my American journey, my American story. And I'm so awful at talking about the whole process when the book came out, when people were like, I love your book. My wife had to teach me how to say thank you. That's so lovely of you <laughs> to say that. I just find it so awkward. So I'm not one to really <laughs> blow my own trumpet. So the first part of your question, what is Men in Blazers? I like to believe we are just tiny surfers on a massive wave, but we are, we, we, I've loved football. I, I watch football grow here. I watched from the beginning when I first moved here, if I wanted to follow a big game in England live, it wasn't on here at all, Jeff. I had to call my dad in Liverpool, have him hold the phone against the radio so I could follow along. And that was when long distance calls really were bloody uh, long distance calls. They cost a fortune. I, I, I've seen that change for many, many reasons. Football, the tectonic plates have shifted under America's sporting appetites. Um, and we are just tiny surfers on a massive wave of just Americans for complex reasons that I can bore you with if you want. But um, they've embraced the game I love. Um, we've benefited from that. And Men in Blazers is a place of joy. It's a place of um, where we feel the emotion of not just of the game, but the emotions of life. Ultimately, soccer is the small story. The big story is life is trapped in football. And we have so many guests that come on the show 
who have fallen madly, truly, deeply in love with the sport and to give them a showcase to talk about it. You know, Aaron Rodgers, great Californian, um, coming on to talk about his true love of the sport. Now, J.J. Watt, DeAndre Hopkins, um, half of the NBA, love to come on. And to have them come on and really talk about their dizzying embrace of the game is, is for me, the honor of a lifetime. Do you think about soccer as becoming part of the red-blue America debate today? Jeff, you're asking me that after our uh, women um, were beaten in the semi-final um, of an Olympics. And we're living, I don't really like to talk about it because I don't love to give it oxygen. But we are living in an America where there are, there's, a, there's a, a, a small, I'd say, a small but vocal um, I mean, ultimately, I call them what they are. It's a troll, social media uh, <laughs> troll base who who delighted in their failure. So Americans who love America and talk about the language of patriots actually rooting against an American team in international competition. I find it, I find it befuddling. I find it sickening. I find it traumatic. Um, so yes. I mean, sports everywhere, but the England story I told you earlier, sports is now so massive. It's part of culture. Whereas, you know, where I grew up, it was soccer was just working class. Uh, you know, it was day class A. It was just something for the working classes to entertain them at the weekend. It's now just a juggernaut of, 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 of global culture, of American culture. And so, yes, it's, it's very much caught up in, uh, in the political discourse for good. And, and right now, uh, you've caught me at a moment when it feels, as an American who loves America and loves the women's team and loves watching them and knowing how much joy they've given so many people uh, over the last couple of decades, um, I, I, find it, I find it deeply traumatic. But it's the sport of the future. Thank God. Thank <laughs> God it is. And it is. You, you're going to know. I know a lot of your listeners will... Uh, will be shaking their heads still and, you know, uh, thinking Joe Montana, Dwight Clark, that will be never be forgotten. Soccer, that's not where, you know, our head is at. I promise you, we come in peace. We come in joy. Um, it's not replacing anything. It's augmenting. And 2026, when the World Cup returns here, um, I do believe it will actually have the effect on this nation uh, that it was meant to in 1994, but just... Um, for just a couple of decades late. Roger Bennett. His book is Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. Roger, it has been a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, you're a beautiful bloke. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.